The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. She-Wolf of London is the very definition of a cult TV show. Little seen, underappreciated, but with a small, very small, but loyal fan base. This US-UK co-production has a lot to recommend about it. Sharing absolutely nothing in common with the 1946 movie of the same name, She-Wolf of London centres around Randy Wallace, played by the wonderfully expressive Kate Hodge, as an American exchange student sent to London to study mythology under renowned professor Ian Matson, played as a proto-Rupert Giles by Biggles actor Neil Dixon. Matson ends up being a bit of a sceptic in regards to all this mythology guff, which disappoints Randy given that she's only here because of Matheson's books on mythology and the supernatural. As you may expect from the title, whilst exploring the moors in her quest to prove the theory's real, Randy is bitten by a werewolf. Obviously, the only person she can turn to, largely because he's the only person she knows in England, is Ian, and she and he spend the rest of the series avoiding the full moon and investigating all other manners of paranormal activity. This leads to a fun 20-episode adventure series, one with engaging characters, likeable actors, and a tongue planted firmly in cheek. As with The Incredible Hulk, the actual She-Wolf isn't played by Hodge, but by Diane Udale. And if that name sounds familiar to British listeners, it's because she was Jet for five years on The Gladiators. Udale was 19 when she did She-Wolf, and bigger things were just around the corner. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. This all sounds a bit X-Files, you're thinking, or it's all a bit Buffy, isn't it? Or perhaps even, that just sounds like a gender-flipped version of an American werewolf in London. Well, yes, lovely listener, these thoughts would all be correct and proper, except She-Wolf of London predates both the X-Files and Buffy by three and seven years respectively. As for the American werewolf in London comparison... Well, Universal Pictures specifically brought in series producers Tom McLaughlin and Mick Garris for that very purpose, a TV version of the John Landis classic. However, just after development began, Universal's lawyers called the duo and told them, yeah, we don't actually have the rights to a TV version of American Werewolf. And a quick search of the Universal Library of Titles netted them a title they could use without throwing out all that development time. She-Wolf of London. Now, we need to step back for a second here, as I realise that I am deep in the weeds. I've never even heard of this show, you may be saying to yourself, and are you sure you're not making all this up? Well, for one, I am hurt and offended at the mere notion, and second, there may be a perfectly logical reason that you haven't heard of this show. Depending on where you live, it may not have been called She-Wolf of London. See, HTV, the British backers, balked at the violence and sexual content one would have thought inherent in a show called She-Wolf of London, and pulled out after 14 episodes. HTV, who presumably assumed a show about a she-wolf would be cuddly family fun, thought they were getting a cosy Saturday night tea time thing, and were a tad annoyed at what they got back. When watching this again, I can actually see the point. There's nothing in this that would raise any eyebrows had it been heard in a 8, 9, 10 o'clock in the evening time slot. However, in the 1990s, the Saturday tea time slot was where ITV heard foreign-produced family fun like The A-Team, Knight Rider and Baywatch. And whilst The A-Team was more cartoonally violent than She-Wolf, the on-screen murders seen here were a lot more graphic and visceral than anything Hannibal and company got up to. With HTV slightly perturbed, they pulled the plug on the co-pro deal, and Universal moved Ian and Randy to LA and continued production under a new title, Love 
and Curses, a terrible title that means nothing. She-Wolf of London is a much better title. In the UK, all 20 episodes aired on the Sci-Fi Channel as She-Wolf of London. In the US, the 14 UK-produced episodes aired as She-Wolf, whilst the remaining six episodes ended up being titled Love and Curses. Syndicated prints and the subsequent DVD release saw all 20 episodes rebranded as Love and Curses. Is that clear? Because I'm not sure that it is to me. Basically, unless you saw this on its original erring in America, you only ever saw it under the latter title. Assuming you ever saw it at all. The first episode is a standard pilot show, with little in the way of surprises. Unless, of course, you count the opening titles, which completely spoil the events of the episode. Now, obviously, the show is called She-Wolf of London. So, presumably, there will be a she-wolf in it, and it will, presumably, take place in or around London. So I understand that the title of the show is a spoiler for the pilot episode. That being said, actually showing your title character being attacked and transforming into a werewolf in the opening credits of the first episode, before you've even been introduced to her, seems a tad dumb. Most pilot or first episodes don't have standard opening credits so as to not spoil the very thing the show is about. Not She-Wolf, apparently. The first episode was written by Mick Garris and Tom McLaughlin and directed by Dennis Aby. Here's the theme. That's a very moody gothic theme, as befits the, the tone of the show. I'm unaware if Garris or McLaughlin had ever actually been to England, as this pilot episode is replete with clichés. The foggy moors, the backward attitudes of the gypsy carnival, the ancient stone buildings, stuffy academics and bad food, all of which are easily debunked by anyone whose research consisted of more than an afternoon of watching carry-on films. Apparently, the relationship between a student and a teacher is also different in America, as Randinians start flirting from the off. Which is odd, given that she's a transfer student of about 23-24 years of age, and Ian is her lecturer, clearly in his mid-thirties. Here's a clip. Excuse me, Dr. Matheson. Ah, the poltergeist. Hi, I'm Randy. Randy Wallace. And I'm flattered. Isn't Wallace a rather unusual name for a woman? Sorry? You're American? Yeah, L.A., Los Angeles. I should probably warn you, Miss Wallace, that over here, Randy usually means, well, how can I put this delicately, erotically charged. Oh, God. You mean like horny? I'm afraid so. Oh, I'm sorry. Then no need to apologize. Here, let me help you. You're working on your master's thesis? Yeah, exactly. I'm uh, seeking to explain folk legends and myths through terms of Freudian psychological need, debunking through motivational psychogenic analysis, and your work in this, in this field is uh, it's important. Well, uh, psychogenic-based debunking is a fairly general approach. My work, while theoretical, is more fundamentally rooted in the Cartesian dualistic patterns of mythology in a sociological context. Uh. <laughs> now, if we just give the Queen's English a simple workout... You know, important usually means to me, dull, stodgy, and grey. But I'll do my best to accept the compliment. Well, that's how I meant it, really. Well, thank you. Tell me, are you staying on campus? Yes. Well, I mean, I was, but um, 
I'm having some problems with residency requirements. I'm working on getting something together now, though. Perhaps I can help you. My parents run a B&B not too far away. I'm certain they'd love the idea of a full-time student boarding. It's clean, it's a block away from the tube, and the price is right. I'm visiting there for dinner tonight, if you'd like me to introduce you. Wow, that would be great. I mean, if it's not too much trouble or anything. Aren't you worth it? I think I'm gonna like England. The scenes with Ian Matson's family in the pilot episode is, frankly, embarrassing. Ian's family, mum, dad and Aunt Elsa are comedic characters that aren't very funny, and the token American boarder staying with the Mathsons, Julian, played by Scott Fultz, is completely perfunctory, given that we already have Randy to provide the fish-out-of-water humour. To sustain a weekly TV show, the producers seem to have decided the series needs a moonlighting vibe, and that is definitely the image that Randy and Ian are projecting. Perhaps it would have been less salacious if Randy had been a newly qualified teacher who's applied for a job at Ian's university due to her interest in his work. That way, Randy is a contemporary of Ian, not a student, and the whole scenario doesn't raise a spocky an eyebrow. Still, it is what it is, and it's far sillier that after a lengthy discussion about Randy's plan to visit the moorland at night, and Ian's insistence that she doesn't go alone, that he lets her go alone than it is the relationship issue, so we'll just gloss over that and move on. Again, probably would have made more sense to have Ian accompany her, and being in a different tent, he could have heard the attack, scurred the beast away, and gotten her to hospital, thus explaining how she manages that feat, when she was clearly in the middle of nowhere with no one around. As it is, it's just dumb luck that she manages to find her way from the middle of nowhere to a local hospital. Nevertheless, the werewolf attacks, Randy is found, somehow gets to hospital, and as her only contact in England, Ian is called to take her home. The scene where Ian picks her up at the hospital and tells her what happened must have been a pickup shot or a reshoot, as Ian Dixon's her is a lot shorter and neater. The pilot episode pretty much proceeds as you would expect. Randy learns that she is now a werewolf, Ian witnesses her first wolf out, and agrees to help her and they proceed to spend every subsequent full moon keeping Randy locked up in chains to prevent her from killing anybody. <sighs> Again, HTV was surprised? I mean, just looking at this pilot episode, the bondage subtext is, well, text. Randy even tells Ian she enjoys it. She also points out that turning into a werewolf every full moon is strangely erotic. Randy's sexual confidence and forthright attitude is actually a refreshing change. Speaking of changes, the transformation scenes are nicely done, aping American Werewolf and, to a lesser extent, the Incredible Hulk. CGI was not a factor in 1990, so the purely practical transformation scene is well handled by the makeup team. Sadly, the same cannot be said for Randy's finalised form. Werewolves were notoriously difficult to pull off before the advent of CGI, just look at Buffy or the X-Files as proof, and She-Wolf is no exception. The She-Wolf looks exactly what it is, a woman in a fur bikini in a desperate need of a wax. Amy does his best, keeping Randy in the shadows as she stalks Ian in the university library, and keeping full-on shots of her to a minimum. Later directors could perhaps have studied this a little more closely, as we will see as we get into the subsequent series. Dixon, likewise, tries to sell it as best he can, but the problem with the central premise is that to make it believable, you have to keep the character we all want to see off screen. This is fine in a film, see Alien, for example. But in a TV show, the audience is eventually going to want a money shot, albeit not the money shot we get to see, that HTV presumably would have preferred that we didn't in a family show. More on this later. There's a really well done scene in the middle as Ian puts it all together, despite his reticence to actually believe any of it. Here it is for your listening pleasure. I remember this, this, this dog, it was, it was huge and vicious. Yes, it seems you can kick to jowl. With the hound of the mascarons. The hound of the mascarons. Jesus! It bit me. 
calm down. Please. Don't worry, you're gonna be all right. Everything's gonna be fine. They bit me. Everything's gonna be fine. I remember this this dog. This, this dog. This Jesus! They bit me. They bit me. Calm down. Teeth. Don't worry, you're gonna be all right. Everything's gonna be fine. The other problem with this premise is nudity. By its very nature, a werewolf must revert back to its human form. And again, by its very nature, they're normally naked. Obviously, that's not going to fly on network telly in the 90s. And so Randy reverts to human form in a shower surrounded by steam. It's a men's locker room, so hilarity ensues when a group of students wander into the shower room to find a hot naked chick in the men's locker room shower. Now to be fair this scene could have been horrendous but it ends up being quite charming. One of the guys even offers Randy's towel which is moderately gentlemanly of him although it leaves him start bollard naked in front of her a moment Randy plays for laughs. It works because it's the guy who ends up being embarrassed and because Kate Hodge is effortlessly charming. She locates Ian and convinces him to help in this clip. Randy, I think perhaps you should return to the States. No way. I am not taking home some English curse. Damn it. I know what happened last night. It was real. It happened to me. And it means that everything we know is wrong. Randy, there are no werewolves. Prove it. What are you trying to say? I'm saying that I am not going home. This disease stays until I find a cure. Dr. Matheson. Ian. Look, I know this all can't logically be true. I know it... It makes no sense, but... Please... You've got to help me find some sort of cure. You know you can't explain what happened last night, so let's... So let's solve this thing together. All right, Miss Wallace. I'll help you. And before the next full moon? Werewolf folklore is followed pretty faithfully, with Randy discovering she has to find and kill the alpha that sired her, or take her own life. She then orgasms on screen. like fun being a werewolf. Apparently there was a lot more sex and relating sex and bondage fantasy to lycanthropy in the script and one can play werewolf mythology for metaphor just as you can with vampirism. However given this was made for syndication in America and Saturday tea time here the subtext had to be toned down in the finished show. This problem, the show the producers want to make versus the show the backers want to make, never really goes away. You can't really make a horror film for the family hour. Still, the location filming is well shot, and despite the depiction of the gypsies as being out of the 17th century, the climax is effectively staged, as Randy and Ian pursue the alpha. In true UK genre telly fashion, they end up in a quarry. Blake Seven and Doctor Who would be proud. The alpha, predictably, dies, leaving Randy stuck with her curse. To explain how Ian and Randy will suddenly come across all manner of supernatural shenanigans on a weekly basis, the duo place an Equaliser-style advert in a newspaper, informing anyone with supernatural problems to get in touch. I did warn you that the pilot episode was cliché-central. Still, for all that, She-Wolf of London was remarkably watchable and fun. A lot of this is down to the dialogue, which is light and funny and Kate Hodge and Neil Dixon, who work very well together and possess a sparky chemistry. There's a lightness of touch to the proceedings, a feeling that we aren't meant to take this too seriously. Just go with it and have a good time. <laughs> 
Episode 2, The Bogman of Leechmoor Heath, depicts a rural London as a backwards community of superstitious morons who never left the 19th century. Leechmore Heath is at least a real place, so kudos for glancing at a map. In real life, Leechmore Heath is not far from Elstree Studios, and as such has been used as the location for a number of notable movies, including the 1960 version of Village of the Damned, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, The Vampire Lovers, The Devil Rides Out, and Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. It has also been seen in many ITC shows of the era, including The Avengers, The Saint, Department S, and UFO, amongst many, many others. In this episode, Ian's auntie is killed by a mythical bogman, and Ian and Randy pop off to investigate. Tonally, this isn't as tongue-in-cheek as the pilot, although there's still quite a few funny lines, and the sheer number of murders in this episode may have been one of the things that caused HTV to get a severe case of froze toes. Still, Dixon and Hodge hold it all together, and the episode ends up getting quite sexy in places. You're sleeping shifts. You're a fun date. It's your reputation. Too late. Most notably, the Bogman of Lechmore Heath does not take place during a full moon, so Randy doesn't wolf out at all. The producers decided early on they didn't want stories to revolve around the wolf outs, and thus avoid the show from becoming too formulaic and, presumably, too expensive. Moonlight Becomes You, or One Flew Over the Werewolf's Nest, is episode 3, and almost nails the tone the series should be going for. Randy and Ian are hired by a woman whose brother, like Randy, is suffering from a severe case of lycanthropy, and they track him down to an asylum for the mentally ill. They go undercover with Randy as an inmate and he is a doctor, and they learn the owner is experimenting on the hirsute brother to isolate how werewolves change, and if it can be weaponised. Now, I say this episode almost nails it because it falls down in its treatment of the mentally ill as fodder for jokes and, it has to be said, rather staid and predictable jokes at that. Now, I'm not normally someone who looks at things from times past and judges them by the standards of today. I tend to think that's folly. But I wouldn't have thought this collection of raging stereotypes and lame loony bin gags were funny even in 1990 when this episode was produced. The episode also lends credence to the idea that the writer's sole knowledge of Britain came from Hammer Horror movies. That said, other than the ill-judged humour at the expense of the mentally ill, this episode treats its actual subject matter, lycanthropy, seriously. Randy and the brother Derek have a long, heartfelt conversation about the curse of being a werewolf. That it isn't controllable, and that you have to kill, and yet you still retain a residue of memory of what you've done, leaving you culpable. The blending of the metaphor as well, the weaponising of something natural for profit, is also well handled. As later shows like The X-Files, Supernatural and Buffy would prove, this horror comedy mix is a hard blend to brew. But if you can pull it off, you crack the code. She-Wolf is trying, bless its furry heart, and it was even ahead of its time in its attempt to mix what would nowadays be called mythology episodes with the more case-of-the-week approach, and Moonlight Becomes You gets credit for confronting the subject matter head-on. Derek, having been a werewolf for a while, actually longs for death, whereas Randy and Ian aren't quite ready to give up just yet. The nails in the coffin of She-Wolf of London being suitable for a family audience come thick and fast. The Juggler deals with satanic cults, and whilst it's one of the more atmospheric episodes, full of dry ice in graveyards, spooky images of cobwebbed mortuary attendants, crypts, some really suggestive dialogue, and naked sacrifices, I do wonder how on earth they thought this one would slide by the broadcast authority. Judicious use of the pause button, purely in the name of research, you understand, clearly shows the sacrifice to be topless, which is fine in a hammer horror, not so good in a show aimed to err in the Baywatch time slot. Nice girls don't dust off the old chestnut of premature ageing, the succubus, and subliminal implants in music to create a moderately sexy gothic horror episode. And in the interests of full disclosure, I have to mention that the next episode, The Little Bookshop of Horrors, features a slightly and very tenuous personal connection. The filming took place in a small village in Gloucestershire, where my nan happened to be visiting her sister. She witnessed the actors filming this episode. I think it was the closest thing to a claim to fame I had for years. 
It's a fun story about the literary characters coming to life and killing people, with the Queen of Hearts lopping off heads and Captain Ahab harpooning people. Other than being quite surprised that the Matheson family reads a tabloid like The Sport, which largely made its rep on tits and footy, the little bookshop of horrors is loads of fun, nodding to classic literature whilst also taking the piss out of the very pulp novels the show itself makes its stock and trade. This is also the first mention of Ian's novel, which will become a recurring feature over the rest of the series. Can't Keep a Dead Man Down is a pulpy two-part story featuring zombies and the death of Ian Matheson. And Elsa has taken it upon herself to rewrite Ian's stuffy novel as a bodice-ripping bonk-buster, and it has been optioned as a Hollywood movie. The writers wring some nice emotion out of Randy, presuming Ian to be dead, and the cliffhanger to part one is very effective, but there are too many diversions that go nowhere, and the 90-minute running time feels somewhat padded. The Wild Hunt goes all sleepy hollow, with a Victorian horseman lopping off heads in a bizarre inbred village. Well, the script says they're in a village, and indeed in the country, but Ian and Randy are clearly in the Docklands. The tone of this one is all over the place, with even the normally reliable Neil Dixon and Kate Hodge overacting badly and leaning into the camp rather than playing it straight, which is a shame, as this ridiculous story would have been better if it had been more grounded. It's also one of the more risque episodes, with an almost full frontal shot of Werewolf Randy and multiple beheadings. Earlier on I mentioned the money shot, but I doubt this is what the money men had in mind. What's got into them opens with a bloody gunshot wound to a middle-aged lady's midsection and a loud cry of GET THE BASTARD! Gory and quite well directed, this episode sweeps under the carpet that Ian's father, possessed by a ghost, yes, but still Ian's father, slits a man's throat. Big Top She-Wolf is as daft as it sounds. The circus, represented by the real-life performers of the J. Miller Circus Troupe, sees Babylon 5's Jason Carter as a devilishly handsome ringmaster, ruling his circus of crime with a hellish glee. You can see where I'm going with this, right? The twist here is that the ringmaster can keep Randy from changing. It's competently staged, but rather routine, and the producers need to decide if we're going full, will they, won't they? Or are Randy and Ian a couple? Because the signals aren't just mixed, they've been blended together. Like Ian's father, now being a murderer, one would have thought that Randy learning she can possibly control the transformations would have had some impact on the show, and yet the episode ends with a cheap gag and the end theme jauntily reimagined as a harpsichord circus piece. Lingering shots of alluring women in their underwear open She-Devil, as She-Wolf of London finally tackles vampires. Well, kind of. Frequently it seems that the episodes written by Rabkin and Goldberg lean too heavily in the direction of jokey, or in this case, stupid. Apparently Ian's old flame has concocted a serum that turns people into animals in the sack. But as you may expect, it goes awry, leading people to turn feral. It's another bloody episode, but at least Natalie Forbes, who plays Ian's ex Kristen, seems to be having fun. Viewers of a certain age will remember her from the ITV sitcom house. Voodoo Child is silly fun, notable for seeing Doctor Who's Henry Jargo as a dentist, and Beyond the Beyond is a pre-galaxy quest, often mean-spirited piss-take of fandom. Ian is invited to a science fiction convention to promote his novel, however the main draw are the cast of Beyond the Beyond, a cult 1960s TV show about the Starship Explorer and its intrepid crew led by Captain Pierce and Mr Snork. The creator, Conrad Stipe, is murdered just after announcing a new major motion picture with an all-new cast is to go into production. Ian is sniffy about the whole endeavour, but Randy is a fan, seeing more depth in the silly show than is perceived by the general audience. Kate Hodge, along with Dorothea Phillips as Aunt Elsa, parading around in a cast-off spacesuit from Space 1999 by the looks of things, who steal this episode. They work exceptionally well together, and it makes us realise that the supporting cast have been quite squandered overall. Though Randy as a werewolf is irrelevant to this episode, a locked room murder mystery which happens to be set at a science fiction convention. It's a throwback to a time before cons were multimedia conglomerates, and despite its cheap shots, there's a nostalgic glow to it all. And it all ends well, 
with Stipe revealed to be alive and the controversy surrounding the supposed death, meaning the movie can go ahead, but with the TV cast. Beyond the Beyond is one of the most innocuous and innocent episodes of the show, but clearly the sex, satanic rituals, violence, murderous cults and nudity of the earlier segments were causing much consternation amongst the British backers, and they pulled the plug. With the funding cut off at the knees, Universal cut their losses, but instead of cancelling the series outright, they gave it another try. Curiosity Killed the Kravitz was the result. A repiloting of the series, moving the location to LA and re-establishing the character's new status quo and a new title for the series. A stealth reboot calls for a reworking of the theme. As you can hear, the differences are notable from the off. The film stock is sharper and less gothic, the lighting brighter, and the opening titles now have shots of waves crashing upon sandy beaches and Randy and Ian jumping from great heights into swimming pools. The theme is no longer moody, it's light and fluffy. It looks glossier and more polished, and yet, somehow, it's less charming. To the producer's credit, we don't suddenly open with Randy and Ian in LA, nor are we given a mass exposition dump to explain it. We're still in London, and Ian has been fired. The supporting cast get a farewell scene, wherein Randy receives a call from her friend Ellen in LA that her neighbours are lizard people. Instead of dismissing this as bunk, Randy opts to return to LA to investigate. Ian chooses to go with her. I'm unsure if these scenes were filmed before production upped sticks to LA or after, but if it's after... The set decorators did a decent job of matching the sets, if not the lighting, and the supporting cast got a nice busman's holiday to LA. If they filmed this before leaving, fair play to them for retaining the cast and giving them a decent goodbye. Too many shows write cast members out in between episodes, and it never works, and it always galls. So this made a nice change. Especially nice, Aunt Elsa asks Randy for an autographed picture of Adrian's Med. Upon landing in LA, Ian instantly goes native. His hair is perfect, he starts wearing eyeliner and designer suits, and apparently he's kept in touch with whoever was turning his novel into a film, leading him to believe that he is now a high-powered movie mogul. Brandy doesn't change much at all, which is a credit to Kate Hodge, who keeps her character grounded. Curiosity Killed the Kravitz is actually quite a funny episode, featuring TV-addicted trolls, and it's always nice to see Paul Williams. The script is ahead of its time in terms of showing the demonic bad guys as being addicted to earthly pursuits, similar to Spike's love of soap operas on Buffy. It's also notable for establishing that Ian and Randy are definitely a couple. To keep them together, Ian's LA contact, Skip, gives Ian a gig hosting a late night chat show about the paranormal, meaning they can still keep searching for a cure under the guise of interviewees for the show. Interestingly, well, to me anyway. Skip is played by Dan Gilvesen, best known as the voice of Peter Parker in Spider-Man and his amazing friends. As a repiloting, rebooting of the format, this works as well as can be expected. Starting in London and firmly introducing the new format instead of just having it occur in between episodes make this feel more organic than shows like Buck Rogers or Space 1999 were in between seasons, sweeping changes occurred that no one comments upon or even seems to notice. 
The fatal misstep here is that Randy never once turns into a werewolf, which, if you're re-establishing your show, would seem to be a pretty important piece of information. Habeas Corpses loads upon 90s TV guest stars, with Barry Van Dyke and Marta Dubois cropping up as divorce lawyers. Randy and Ian move into a swanky new place, a new standing set, complete with a sliding bookshelf with a cell and chains behind it. Ian's gig as a talk show host is apparently paying well. In addition to the new digs and the convertible, he's gone and got himself some hair plugs, as his hair is now looking fuller and more luxuriant, and it even rivals Randy's in the bouffant department. After the false alarm that was She-Devil, we finally get a vampire, the metaphor here being ex-wives and lawyers bleeding people dry. The law firm is well realised, ten years before Angel would feature demonic lawyers, and the spoofing of LA law is well done, with Barry Van Dyke excelling as the slimy lawyer. But these LA-based episodes seem to have forgotten Randy as a werewolf for all the influence that it's having on the stories. In fact, the series seems to have completely forgotten it's a horror show at all. It's all big her, shoulder pads and tuxedos now, the gothic, hammer-inspired locales and plots of the early shows tossed aside for beaches and sun. The silliest development here, though, is that Randy wolfs out whenever she has sex. I fail to see the point of getting Ian and Randy together to have them be kept apart by the werewolf's curse. She didn't seem to have a problem having sex in the UK episodes, it's remarkably funny to me that LA, the land of sun, sea, surf and sex, is apparently so prudish that the mere mention that a couple who live together have actual sex is so anathema to them that they have to sweep it aside in favour of moonlighting style soft focus and spoofing other TV shows. Speaking of spoofs, Bride of the Wolfman is a black and white homage to universal horror movies, although... Sadly, and in a missed opportunity in my opinion, not the 1947 She-Wolf of London from which the series originally gained its name. Randy and Ian find themselves in an old horror film, complete with Jean Rivette, Tony Amendola and Bob the Goon from Batman. As with the Bride of Chaotica episode of Star Trek Voyager, the episode is charming in its knowing nods to the Universal monster movies to which it partially owes its existence. Kate Hodge is even more beautiful in monochrome, evoking the leading ladies of the past, but without the need to be a damsel in distress. And Ian Dixon scrubs it well as the straight-laced, square-jawed hero type. This being She-Wolf, Ian and Randy know they are in a black-and-white movie. You're looking a little pale, Randy quips. It's up to Ian to work out if they are trapped in the film, doomed to follow the script, or if they have free will and can influence the events. The use of old Universal stock footage, complete with the three-forked lightning bolt used in the opening titles to The Incredible Hulk, is well done, and Randy even has a cute gag at the expense of the transformation effects. Bride of the Wolfman is probably the best of the LA set episodes. Heart Attack is a silly Cupid-based episode in which Cupid's arrow kills, but it all turns out alright in the end, A Mystical Pizza sees three witches from Salem take vengeance upon the men who wronged them. This being LA, they aren't short of choices, including Skip, and it's up to Randy and Ian to get to the bottom of it before Skip is changed into a literal rat. It wasn't terribly subtle. To be honest, this is more like an episode of Bewitched than She-Wolf, carried by the actors who seem like they're enjoying playing the comedy, but the show itself is more camp than ever. The best gag is Ian's alias, a Mr. Randall Hopkirk. The season, and series, concludes with Eclipse. From the title, one would assume this would be an episode that dealt head-on with Randy's curse and lycanthropy, perhaps looking seriously into a cure, something only given lip service in the LA-based episodes. One would be wrong. Ostensibly a takedown of the fad of self-help groups, the idea that Randy doesn't fully wolf out due to a lunar eclipse is a good one, but it's tacked onto a rather silly and campy storyline about spies. There's no hint of a resolution to Randy's story, and it's rather a disappointing final episode. I know that shows in this era tended to be just cancelled, 
but maybe looping some dialogue about there being a hope of a cure rather than a cutesy gag about other films Dixon and Hodge have been in would have perhaps been a better way to go. But this pretty much sums up She-Wolf's main problem. Given the choice between being true to the show's premise or making a cute or smarmy gag, the producers opted for the latter every time. She-Wolf of London was in many ways ahead of its time. It arrived alongside Friday the 13th, the series, and Freddy's Nightmares, but boasted better production values and stories than either of them. However, other than syndicated entries like those mentioned above, horror wasn't really considered a good match for TV, the odd late-night repeat of Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense notwithstanding. The very thing that drew horror fans to horror films, the scurs, the gore, the monsters, the sex, all these things were considered anathema on TV, or certainly in the primetime slot She-Wolf was aiming for. She-Wolf pushed the boundaries in regards to nudity and violence, and this is very notable by its absence in the US set episode. Once the show hits LA, there's no sex, and the linking of lycanthropy to sex and bondage disappears almost completely. The series is so removed from its core concept that there's now very little violence, no nudity at all. Not that the UK-based episodes were X-rated. And the horror elements are removed almost completely as the US episodes settle more into the vein of a romantic comedy. The irony here is that if the UK episodes had been as tame as the US episodes, then the series might have continued as a co-pro. Instead, the LA shows are rather smug, meta-commentary send-ups of other shows, rather than the hammer-horror moonlighting hybrid of the earlier episodes. This really guts the central premise. She-Wolf was always a tad corny and a little smug, but it had an edge as well. The characters, or at least Randy, took her situation seriously, even when the world around her was mad as a bag of rabbits. It simply wasn't the right time for She-Wolf of London, and had it been made a few years later, when censorship rules had relaxed a little, perhaps it could have had a decent run. We were only a few years away from the X-Files showing that horror could work on a TV budget. Also in common with the X-Files, whose Canadian film shows are far superior to the LA-made episodes, She-Wolf was pretty decent when it was a co-pro, and the producers found locations and actors that really tapped into the Hammer Horror vibe, giving the London-based episodes an atmospheric and spooky tone that was lost when it transferred to LA. It's not just the location, although that's part of it, but the talent pool. LA is full of bland mannequins with little to no character in their faces, whereas the UK and Canadian acting talent pool is full of actors with characters seeping out of every pore. The atmospherics, lighting and camera work was far superior in the early shows as well. But more importantly, on UK TV, She-Wolf was unique. On American TV, it was just another detective show with a gimmick. Still, She-Wolf was fun, and it was nice to revisit it. It's available on DVD, and if you can find it, on archive.org, should you be interested. Kate Hodge was a great leading lady, and had this been more successful, she could have become a breakout star like Sarah Michelle Gellar or Gillian Anderson. She-Wolf of London wasn't successful enough to warrant a TV movie sequel, so Randy and Ian's story remains unresolved. I prefer to think they moved back to London, where they could at least have sex, and Randy learned to live with her problem. Perhaps raising lots of teen wolves. Hmm, now there's an idea. As a concept, though, this seems like a prime candidate for a reboot. Get the tone right, and the show could be a huge success. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll see the she-wolf howl again. Why are we doing this again, Molly? It's simple, Mercy. Your adventures as a trekker haven't stopped, and neither has Ron Randall. Who's Ron Randall? He's the writer and artist behind the comic books that star you, me, and Scoff. Oh, him. So what does he want? An autograph? No. He wants people to help fund his Kickstarter. They can go to trekkerkickstarter.com and find out how to back the project and what rewards they can get. They might even get to share an adventure with you. What? I'm not taking some wet-behind-the-ears wannabes out to get themselves shot up. Where did he get an idea like that? 
Well, he's done it successfully before. <sighs> Typical. Ron Randall's Trekker has a new Kickstarter beginning this summer. Remember to go to TrekkerKickstarter.com for all the information on backer rewards, stretch goals, and how you can help bring the next Mercy St. Clair adventure into reality. Okay, let's check the email sack. Uh, there's two emails in the sack waiting to bulge out. Rob McCarthy's emailed in. I am always upset when Superman and or Batman allow killing. I mean, Venom screws with his mind, but Wolverine? Punisher? Heck, Paladin is not usually so bloodthirsty. I don't know, because I don't remember Paladin being in anything else other than the issues of Spider-Man. So honestly, I don't recall Paladin being bloodthirsty or not, other than this particular story. So I don't know, maybe he's, he's normally quite good, I don't know. The other email is from Tim Elliott, Burnout 178, which is obviously referencing the episode number. Hello, Mr. Leyland, if that is your real name. I always imagine your backstory is a fabrication, and in truth, you are a burned MI6 agent hiding in plain sight. I don't know how plain it is. <laughs> Hide behind a microphone. Your coverage of Burn Notice was, as usual, excellent. Thank you very much. So good that after listening, I went out and purchased the first season, or series for you. I discovered Burn Notice with the pilot and felt there was something special here. Jeffrey Donovan is such a likeable actor, despite his detached, no-nonsense approach to the character. It didn't hurt that Bruce Campbell was along for the ride. I kept up with the show for the first few seasons, but I gradually fell off and did not finish. I believe it's time for a rewatch. I am currently into season four. In my rewatch of Burn Notice, thoroughly enjoying it. It's interesting that, you know, Jeffrey Donovan and Bruce Campbell bring all the boys to the yard. But for me, it was also Gabrielle Anwar. Gabrielle Anwar had quite an extensive career from being very, very young. She was in Stephen Moffat's press gang um, as a teenager. So it was it was Gabrielle was seeing Gabrielle Anwar again, as well as obviously the mighty Bruce Campbell, um, in Bird Notice that made me go, Oh, right, so that's what she's up to nowadays. Um, Tim continues, the Snyder Cut. I think you gave the Snyder Cut an honest appraisal. I sat up the first night it was available and made it through all four hours. <laughs> well done, Tim. <laughs> I didn't make it through four hours in one go. I think I watched it in bits. I was not a fan of the Whedon Cut, not a true fan of any of Snyder's films, except his remake of Dawn of the Dead. We're on pretty much the same page there, mate. Is the Snyder Cut a better film? Yes, but only by degrees. I think it's the same with um, Batman vs Superman, though, isn't it? It is better, but it's better in the sense that it's still a hot misery fest of depression and blur. I see reviews, continues Tim, that claim it's a completely different film. It's so much better what the fans deserved the first time round. No, it's not. It's better, but desperately needs cutting. His choice of music is questionable, and I agree some of the dialogue is cringeworthy. I wonder if much of the love for Snyder in the film is due to Whedon's fall from grace. It's fashionable to hate him now, and that might swing the pendulum back towards the Snyder love. Well, that was the reason that I did feel the need to do that little mini Snyder Cut review. I've got no interest in spending all the time on it that, you know, a four-hour cut of that film would really deserve because I don't want to expose myself to something miserable. And Justice League wasn't miserable. It wasn't as bad as, say, I thought Batman vs Superman was. But it's not good. It's not a good film. It could be a good film with somebody with the judicious use of scissors applied to it. But I think the thing with it was, Snyder had promised all the bronies a four-hour cut, so that's what he had to give them. So I honestly think that a theatrical version with a proper editor who knows how to edit and pace a movie um, could make something out of that and make it better than it is. As it is, it is it is boring in a lot of places because it is four hours when it doesn't need to be. But again, yeah, it is it is much better than it was in its theatrical cut, as was Batman vs Superman. It is not, as I saw many of the Snyder Brony saying, an Oscar-worthy movie by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know what film they were watching that they thought the performances in that movie were Oscar-worthy. The only Oscar-worthy actor in that film is Amy Adams, and she was barely in it. 
it was literally, oh yeah, God, yeah, we've been an hour, haven't we? We need to remind the world that Lois Lane's in this film. So, you know. I'm glad he got to finish the project, continues Tim, but like you, I feel his time has come and it's time to go. Yeah, know when to get off the stage, Zach. Go and make your other stuff. I do like how he's just making nothing but constant pot shots at this point at Warner Brothers. Like, they didn't understand Army of the Dead. They didn't understand how that was going to be a film. And having watched Army of the Dead, you know, Warner Brothers may have been right. Uh, oh, speaking of which, by the way, we saw Army of the Dead in theatres last month. I watched it on Netflix. It's a mess of a film and someone needs to take Snyder's cinematography card away from it. I did. I found that quite amusing. Somebody somewhere, I forget where I had a properly credit them. But somebody somewhere said the reason that nobody's credited cinematographer or DP on this film is because no one would want their name associated with it because of that really lousy, blurry focus thing that he did throughout the movie. It's like, he did it in Batman vs Superman as well, but it's like in Jaws, that famous scene where the dolly pulls back from Roy Schneider and the, the background zooms towards you while he stays relatively in focus. I don't know what the proper name is because I'm not a director of photography. But it happens once in Jaws and everyone remembers it. Can you imagine what it'd be like if Spielberg did that about six times during Jaws? And that's Snyder in, in Army of the Dead with that blurry thing. And it's J.J. Abrams in Star Trek with the... the what's his name? The, the Flash... I've completely lens flow. Thank you. I forgot what that was for a second. It's like as directors, they don't know that sometimes one of those shots can make your movie. And if you put it in like six, seven times, by the time that the audience is left going, what the hell is this? Anyway, keep the shows coming, says Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for your email. Thank you, Rob, for your email. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. I very much hope you enjoyed this look at She-Wolf of London, which is a real show. Honest. It's on archive.org. Or you can go out and buy the DVDs. It's real. Honest. I didn't make it up. But next time, I will be taking a very personal look at the 35th anniversary of John Byrne, DC Comics, Man of Steel. See you all next time. Hey, it's all going to be okay.